thanks for listening to the Goop podcast made possible by our friends at Polestar. Traffic in Los Angeles is notoriously unpredictable, but if you know me, you know I love being behind the wheel, which is why it's always exciting when I get to test drive a new car like the all-electric Polestar 2. At Polestar, they've set out to move us toward a more sustainable future. The new Polestar 2 comes with more power, faster charging, and an improved range of 320 miles. It's available in all-wheel or rear-wheel drive, and the front of the vehicle houses a camera and heated radar that scans the road while you're driving. To learn more about the Polestar 2 and to book a test drive, visit polestar.com. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. (laughs) Did you hear about that? (laughs) I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected, and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive, on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Hi, I'm Kiki, the VP of content here at Goop. Today's conversation is a special one. GP gets to chat with the teacher who has had an incredibly meaningful impact on her life. And we're guessing on many of yours. Tara Brock is a meditation teacher, psychologist, and author of books such as Radical Acceptance. Today, she guides us in her resonant way, helping us to open our hearts to ourselves and to others to break down the divides that exist within and between us, to create space for each other, to pay attention to our vulnerabilities, to be willing to feel our feelings so that they don't unwillingly rule our lives, to together reclaim our humanity. What also makes this episode special is that Tara and Gwyneth do the RAIN practice together, live. If you're not familiar with RAIN, you'll get to learn it today. Over to Gwyneth and Tara. Oh my goodness. I'm totally starstruck. Oh, well, that's, that makes me feel really good for the moment. I've been looking forward to this one. Me too. I just, I cannot tell you how important you are to me, like how you are such a huge part of my wellness practice and like how I get back into my body and your work is so important and so meaningful. So I just want to say thank you before we start. Oh my gosh. That so gladdens me. It makes me happy. Yeah. And you have the best voice. I mean, maybe it's Pavlovian now because, you know, by the time I- We've trained you in. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) I either feel like I hypnotize and put people to sleep or else wake them up, but we're not, I'm not sure which. <laughs> you know? It depends on the day and it depends on the content, I think. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So how's your day? How are you doing? Oh my gosh, thank you for asking. I think I'm okay. It's been a, a busy time. And so just trying to get through all the work and make you know space for myself. And I also have two boys in the house applying to college. So that's a whole other. Oh my gosh. You're at that phase. <laughs> I'm at that I remember. Phase. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you have, I don't know really anything about your personal life. I realized, do you have, how many children do you have? One boy. And I just very well remember the whole process. <laughs> gosh, how great to have your mother be a psychologist and a meditation teacher when you're applying to college. Yes and no. <laughs> You know, he used to, when he'd used to come to classes and people would say, oh, do you meditate with your mom? And he'd say, I'm no Buddha boy, you know, (laughs) He he had to draw his boundaries. And so you have two that are the same age. I have a stepson and a son who are both the same age. Oh my. Are they buddies? Do they get along? They are. They're, they're 
they're like brothers, you know, they really care about each other and look after each other. They're also very, very different, but they're very sweet to each other. Okay. So you're right on that. You're right on the edge of a whole different life. I'm right on the edge. Wow. And how are you doing? If I may ask today? Well, it's, it's all as good in a deep way. And I have to share with you, I've just been very tugged around by, you know, I'm just, it's, I'm heartbroken with all that's happening in the Middle East. And yeah. it's all over the world. I mean, you know, if you look at Darfur and anywhere, it's like it's huge tragedies. But this one's a crusher for some reasons. And I've been involved, you know, responding in all different ways. And so it's, it's taken a lot. It's been, it's been intense. Yeah. And so striking to me how the cultural response to it all is so deeply polarized and there's so much, I was actually thinking about you when it all was happening, because how do you think that there, we can, like, where, where can there be softening? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm asking the same thing, you know, I'm, and I, I'm like utterly humbled by in that don't know place. What does keep coming back to me is that we have to keep reclaiming our humanity, that we, we have to keep sensing what is, what's really morally true for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, the Buddhists talk about hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And Martin Luther King talks about it. It's, it's in many faiths. So all that feels clear to me is that it's wise to stop, (laughs) just Mm -hmm. to stop the aggression. And I'm really aware this, because I did, I did an event with Israelis last week. And I mean, there were 2,700 people on Zoom. And, you know, this was very close to their, you know, their lives being shredded. This is the biggest thing that's happened to them in their lifetime. And we did it. We ended it with, with a ritual that was really beautiful, where I had them bring candles and invited them to speak, you know, to bring a name or bring, you know, a prayer into the group. And what was so moving is, you know, people said things like the first woman who spoke said, um, My three year old is a hostage and his parents aren't with him. Mm. And that was the first person, you know. And there were sharings like that, but what really touched me is people that said, all the children being killed are our children. Mm-hmm. All the children. And and just brought their care for everybody. So what I'm aware of is that when we're in raw trauma, it's not always possible to have that kind of greatness of heart. You know, it's like, it's it just we're in survival mode and, and not to even expect that. Mm-hmm. But for those of us who are not in trauma, it feels like we're the ones that are, that it's our role to hold that space of really including everybody in our hearts, that that's our job right now, as well as we can. Mm, Absolutely. And so how do you respond to those who are incapable of understanding that and just think, you know, if you're not, if, if anybody's not seeing this or relating to it exactly the way that I am, then they're dead to me. When I'm working with people who are completely in that polarized, traumatized place where there's an enemy, and if you don't see that, you're not on my side, it's, it's really natural to just keep seeking to understand the depth of the hurt they're living in mm-hmm. and, and keep company with that. Mm-hmm. Because it isn't the time to try to change my, you know, I can't change minds. All I can do is try to keep connections, and then wherever there's a possibility, inviting into more of a softening. Mm-hmm. And I went to I went to a vigil last Sunday across from the White House, and again, it was Muslims and Jews and other people that were you know, sharing different people's experience of loss, this family, this individual. But again, there was that sense of holding the space for everybody's loss. Mm-hmm. And that's where the hope is. It's just that it, we're not 
all there yet. Mm-hmm. Is there something that like, do you have a trick or something that you say, you know, if you find somebody in that state to sort of help them help bring them into softening, or do you just have to let them sort of sleep it off and come back when they're less out of that rage? There are ways to work with the trauma. I mean, Mm. I did another kind of an event with therapists who are working 24-7 right now with trauma. And everybody's trying to find some refuge right now. Everyone feels incredibly unsafe, scared, angry, filled with, you know, very charged and are trying to find some way back home, you know. So, Mm. you know, we can start to, let's say you are coming to me and you're feeling just caught in, this is one friend of mine, caught in a lot of anger and hatred. And she has both Palestinian and Israeli friends, and she's just so filled with distress about how things are going, and she's got targets for her blame. But And so we did the RAIN practice, which I know you're familiar with. Oh, yes. And it was so powerful for her. RAIN for anyone listening, recognize, it's an acronym, recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. And it weaves together mindfulness and compassion. And it's a pathway back to inner refuge. Because I really think that's what we're seeking. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Over the last few years, I've taken a number of very memorable road trips. I find that jumping in a car with a good playlist can sometimes unlock things for me. When it comes to driving, Polestar is one of the companies leading the sustainability movement. In recent years, we've seen a lot of innovation with electric cars, and I'm fascinated by all the ways Polestar is helping to move the needle. The new Polestar 2 is their most climate-conscious vehicle to date. For starters, they put a lot of thought into the EV driving experience with their latest model. It comes in either all-wheel drive or rear-wheel drive performance options. They also updated it with faster charging, more power, and a longer EPA estimated range of 320 miles. The enhanced features and safety technology make navigating city traffic and driving on the highway a breeze. Instead of a traditional front grille, they've replaced it with what they call a smart zone. It has a camera and heated radar to increase the car's awareness of its surroundings and assist you through various driving conditions. This technology is built on decades of safety research and shared engineering knowledge with Volvo cars. To learn more about the Polestar 2 and to book a test drive, visit polestar.com. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Could you take us through the process of rain a little bit? Because it really just is, it's such a way back home to yourself so quickly. Do you mind taking us through? It'd be a pleasure. Maybe I'll I'll give you a brief rain story. And then I'll- Of course. And then I'll do a mini meditation with rain. So I have had more people tell me rain saved my life than anything else. I mean, rain when we're stuck, when we're reactive- it really gives us a pathway back to our our best self, you know. And it's I, it's it's I have the anniversary edition of Radical Acceptance that's out now, and it's in I've done a whole lot on Rain in it because it's so popular. So mm-hmm. I first decided to write more about it because my mother had come to live with me and and my husband, and she was like eighty, and. I got so caught in this, I was swinging from the reaction of guilty because I wasn't giving her enough time to anxious because I had a deadline on getting a chapter done or whatever it was. I don't even remember. But I was really caught in reactivity. And I remember one day she came into this office and she wanted to show me an article from The New Yorker. And I was busy on, you know, looking into my screen I think I was putting together a talk on loving kindness, and that's so embarrassing. But anyway, she was very gracious. She just put down the article, and I saw her retreating form. And I thought to myself, Gwyneth, you know, I don't know how long I'll have her. Mm. And so I decided to do RAIN. And again, the acronym starts with recognize, and that means recognize what's going on inside us. Well, okay. 
guilt, anxiety. So I just name them. And then allow, A, means just let them be there. Don't try to fight what's going on inside you. Allow it to be there. Mm. The eye of rain is investigate. And what that means is to pay attention to how it's living in your body and what's actually going on deep inside you when this is happening. And then the N is nurture, which means offer yourself some some way of kindness. Mm. So I did that. You know, I recognized and allowed the the guilt and the anxiety and I investigated and it got right to that belief of I'm falling short everywhere, you know, which is a core belief of unworthiness. And then the nurturing, you know, because you kind of asked that place, well, what do you need? Was to really trust, you know, trust my goodness, mm. trust that I love her. And I did that. And after I just offered that care, some I just felt larger. I felt more, I went from this guilty daughter to a space of compassion. Something shifted. So I did this a number of times and I started noticing when I was with her, I was really with her. You know, it's like we'd have our big salads together and go for a walk by the river. And I was actually there. It was, and so she died about three, four years later. And she was an awesome person. And I I just talk about her and I can feel the feel it. And I didn't have regrets because Rain had saved my life moments with my mom. It's like, you know, when it's dust to dust, we want to be there, you know. Mm-hmm. So so I ended up doing a lot more writing and focusing on rain. And so what we can do is I'll just do a mini rain right now. And for anyone listening, and this is not hard to do, you might let yourself come into stillness. You might let your eyes close or lower your gaze so that you can turn your attention inward. And maybe even take a few full breaths and let let the breath help collect your attention so you actually can feel yourself right here. Nice, full, deep in-breath and a slow out-breath, just letting go a little with the out-breath. Nice, deep in-breath and then a slow out-breath, letting go, letting go. And letting the breath resume in its natural rhythm and just notice the quality of presence that's here, that you're a little more here. And you might sense what wants to let go a little in your body, maybe shoulders, maybe softening the hands, relaxing, opening the chest, softening the belly. So you can start feeling that you're inhabiting yourself again. And then scanning a little your life and sense what's challenging right now. Some situation where you're reactive that feels difficult. Might be that you're reacting with anxiety or anger, hurt, embarrassment. But some situation, maybe a repeating situation, could be with somebody close to you, family member, friend, child, parent, somebody at work. So some situation where you'd like to have more access to who you really can be. And when you've identified that, Take a moment to actually, as if you're watching a movie, watch the situation unfold and let yourself pause right at the moment where you're most reactive, kind of freeze the frame. Maybe when somebody's saying something in a certain tone or when you're in a certain behavior, maybe an addictive behavior or saying something you regret, freeze the frame. And now's the time to begin rain, to just recognize what's going on inside you right now. 
And you might mentally whisper what you notice. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's hurt. Guilt. Anxiety. Mentally whisper the word, maybe two things, it's okay. And then allow means just let it be there. Just the way a, a wave belongs to the ocean, let this belong. You, even, you can even say, this belongs for this moment, it's okay. And that'll allow you to investigate a bit more. You might sense when this is going on, when I'm reactive, what am I believing? So often we're believing that somebody couldn't care if they were treating us that way, or things are out of control and it's going to get worse, or that we don't like the way we're being, that we're falling short. Sense what you're believing, whatever you're believing, sense where you feel the feelings the strongest in your body might be the throat or the chest or the belly. And you might even explore putting your hand on your heart to kind of bring your attention into the body, to feel where the vulnerability is. And if you want to go deeper into it, you might even feel your face making the expression that goes with the vulnerable feeling, the fear, the anger. Let your posture express it and feel on the inside out as directly as you can. Okay, intimate contact with that feeling, which takes some courage. And you might ask that feeling, what do you need right now? How do you want me to be with you? What is it that would most bring some comfort or ease or healing? And then just listen, because maybe you'll find that this part wants to feel forgiven or understood or accepted or loved or trusted. Maybe it wants you to trust your goodness. Just sense what it needs. And as you're doing that, you might Feel yourself breathing more fully and deeply. Maybe your posture is shifting a little so you can listen from the highest part of yourself, your own awake heart, your own wisdom. And just begin to sense that you can offer what's needed, that the very touch of your hand on your heart can be tender and can communicate care. And you might vary the touch until it feels like you're actually offering care to yourself. And notice what that's like. And you might even offer a message of care. I'm here and I'm not leaving. I care about the suffering. Trust your goodness. Whatever the message is. And if it's hard to offer yourself a message, Imagine that it's coming from someone you trust, someone you love. Could be a friend, could be someone no longer alive, could be a child or a dog, could be an ancestor, it could be this living earth, it can be a deity, just some larger source. Trust yourself, trust your goodness. I'm here and I'm not leaving. And in these next few moments, sense that you can let in whatever care is being offered. Experiment. If you've never done this before, imagine it's the care is bathing you, filling you. And just notice as that happens, that kind of shift in your sense of your own being perhaps noticing that when you started you maybe felt like a scared self or an angry self, and that there's more space, there's more presence, there's more kindness, there's more perspective.
can't believe that I just got to do that with you in real life. I'm so honored. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting it. There's probably nothing that feels more valuable than getting intimate with our own hearts. We need it. We need it in this world. We do. Gosh, do we ever. And it never ceases to amaze me how that practice is just, it's such an immediate kind of remedy for anything, you know, whether it's global or interpersonal. Did you make that up? The acronym existed, but it was in a different form. So I revised it because it needed the nurturing because the nurturing is the pivotal piece. Right. And then, then it took off. I mean, now it's, you know, therapists train other therapists and, and so on. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not, it's not an invention. I mean, it's basically taking these ancient practices of mindfulness and compassion and just weaving it together. It's an applied meditation, which I like. I think that's cool. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Tumi has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Tumi's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Tumi.com or at a Tumi store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Can we talk about how you got here? You've talked about sort of being in this when you were in your 20s, what you call a trance of unworthiness, and that you had specific things happen that led. Will you just tell me and us a little bit about your journey through life to this place? Yeah, well, as you just named, the... I would say there are three there were three forces that kind of landed me up on a spiritual path and one of them is what you just said that I was in college it became so clear to me that I was just chronically down on myself you know especially a friend who told me on a hike you know she said I'm learning to be my own best friend and I went oh my god you know I'm just the furthest thing from you know I was my harshest critic and right. And it was everything. It was my body and how I was eating and how I was in relationships and academics and I wasn't doing enough for the world, the whole thing. So that was one thing is I just knew that I had to find a path of befriending myself. Mm. I really did. And, you know, subsequently, as both as psychologists- Just precipitated by that conversation with her? That was one of the wake-ups to Mm. just- how turned on myself I was. But I, you know, I was aware of judging myself. It was just became like, oof. So I ended up doing a lot with the trance of unworthiness and how to work with self-compassion and forgiveness. But that was one of the motivators. And then another motivator was I was very involved with activism, social activism, social change when I was in college, you know, a lot of rallies, tenants' rights work, and it just very involved. And it came, you know, was part of my genetics, my family, and so on, and, you know, my past. And I started going to yoga classes. And so on Tuesday, I'd be at yoga class, you know, meditating and peaceful. And then on Sunday, we'd be at rallies, you know, us versus them, very strident, angry. <laughs> and it was just so different worlds. And I just remember going at the one day or evening after class, walking home and it was spring and the fruit trees were blossoming and I paused to kind of take it in. And my body and my mind were in the same place at the same time. And there was this feeling of connectedness, you know, mm. with with the trees and with other people. And, and I realized this is what our world needs. I mean, we need to be act, act activists. We need to do things, but it has to come from this, not from anger. Mm -hmm. And so that was another real motivator to deepen that way of homecoming so that when I was acting in the world, it would come from that, from love, not from anger. So that's two. And then another catalyst was psychedelics, that Mm -hmm. I had done a certain amount of psychedelic journeying and 
it just opened me to the realization that reality is way bigger than the little cocoon of thoughts I live in. And between that and and my early glimpses in meditation, I realized, you know, it's this world is an amazingly interesting place if you start looking into what's the nature of reality. You know, so I was so when I ran into an ashram, I was pretty hooked. I I felt like okay, I want to really give myself to that, and then things evolved from there. Wow. And then how how it did you just happen upon a Buddhist ashram? Like how did Buddhism become at the nucleus? Yeah, good question. I did not. I can't, I started with more of a yoga ashram and did that for, I lived in an ashram, wore garb for 10 years, had an arranged marriage, the whole deal, you know. And this was for someone who was a fairly progressive, independent type person. I, I just got into it, you know. It fit me in the sense it was very passionate and intense, which is right. part of my type A personality. Right. But after a decade, I found there was too much of a clash. It was just too and tight and and corrupt and a few other things. So yeah. So I found my way to some Buddhist meditations and then just began practicing and then teaching in that mm. tradition. Do you believe in evil? And do you believe if you do, is it here? The world it, it just feels so we're capable of such darkness. And I wonder if in your philosophy, if it plays into the deeper way that we're supposed to, you know, or what we're supposed to learn about ourselves. I believe that we can experience things as evil, that we can experience them as incredibly dark. I don't think that we're inherently, or anybody's inherently evil. I think that it comes from a real kind of twisted, deluded experience in the psyche, um, basically it comes from feeling separate. I mean, the more separate we feel, you know, that's the basic trance of separation is what gives rise to all aggression and grasping and everything. So the more separate we feel, the more we have to protect ourselves and aggress on others. And it turns into evil when we have been traumatized or experienced so much pain that our only way to feel like we can psychologically survive is to be cruel to others. Mm. So I'd say that, you know, if there's one thing that has guided me and feels most true over the decades is that there is basic goodness to all of us. Um, Einstein put it really famously, he said, you know, that the biggest question we can ask ourselves is, is this universe fundamentally a friendly place? In other words, is there some basic benevolence in life? And I do experience it that this world is love in action, that it that there's a a vast awareness that's playing out in activity, and that activity is basically love, but it can get very twisted in a way that can mm. cause a lot of pain. Mm. So then how do you or how does buddhism sort of frame that like the the acting out of the very hurt person yeah great so there's a there's a metaphor i really like and it's in tibetan buddhism and they they have it in all the art and the Im imagery it's animal-headed goddesses where they have you know the envy and the passion and the aggression and the hatred and they're all as these animal-headed goddesses. And in order to get into sacred space, you have to go through and navigate and be with the goddesses. You can't, it's not like we wake up by bypassing or not experiencing that. These mm -hmm. are shadow we elements in all of us, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the pathway is through. It means that when every one of us has a nervous system with anger, mm -hmm. And it's it's intelligent. There's an intelligence. It's got a message, but it can get twisted if mm. we repress it or act out on it. So when the deity gets activated, the pathway in Buddhism is to recognize it, allow it, investigate it, and bring compassion to it. Mm -hmm. And that frees us so that we're no longer identified with the anger. It frees us into sacred space. So I really like that metaphor because it stops us from making 
difficult emotions wrong. Mm-hmm. It just they're they're energies to be with. And one wise sage said, you know, to, the big question is, what are you unwilling to feel? Yeah. You know? Because if we're not willing to feel them, they actually rule our lives. That's when anger and fear and jealousy rules our life. But if we can just say, oh, okay, jealousy's here, you know, and be with it and feel it and bring kindness to it, it doesn't rule us. It's It feels so hard in our Western culture that, like, it seems, you know, one has to fight so hard and go on such a big search and learn so much to come upon, you know, it's like these teachings, like it's, it's not, we're never taught this in school or at work or by our parents. Certainly my generation wasn't right. Like if you feel something difficult, allow it, be with it make friends with it, It, you know, let it be part of the whole picture. You're absolutely right. And it's happening more. I mean, it is now becoming much more of an established part of Western psychotherapy, you know, that, I mean, it's, it's entered the culture. And our culture really needs it because, you know, getting back to our big picture all the violence comes from unprocessed fear. Yeah. All of it. Yep. And if a culture can't process its fear, it's going to aggress on other cultures. Mm-hmm. And if an individual can't process their fear, they're never going to be intimate with others. So we really have to learn to be with what's difficult. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it just feels like, you know, if I think of myself in my 20s, like I, I just wouldn't have even known where to start. There was so much unprocessed and so much hurt, and I'm not sure I would have known. I I think if I had had this talk with you when I was about 27, I wouldn't have even known (laughs) where to point the the compass. Well, that's why it's kind of amazing how now if you get on a plane and you sit next to somebody, if they're not meditating, they know someone who meditates. It's true. It's it's just, you know, so... That's a good news side of things. I mean, the difficult news is that there's more fear than we've ever had on the planet. I mean, because we're facing our collective demise. I mean, we are living, our nervous systems are feeling the reality of threats to our existence. So everybody's in a higher state of fear. And whenever there's fear, governments go to the right, authoritarianism blooms, People get polarized, people mistrust each other, democracy finds there's no roots. You know, we're seeing it all. So we're at a time where there's actually, we have more understanding of how to train our hearts and mind, but we're also working with more of an intense kind of a hijack of our limbic systems because we're on survival mode. So it's a challenging time. So how do you personally navigate that? Do you toggle back and forth? Do you ever get scared? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All I have to do is read the newspapers. You know, I mean, I get today, I, you know, it's like events almost every day, and I can feel myself getting tugged around. Mm-hmm. And I'll share with you what I do. I'll, I'll bring it back in time a little bit because this, I started doing this when the United States was about to attack Iraq. And I remember feeling this enormous fear and enormous anger because it seemed to me that we were going headlong after 9-11 into something that was going to ripple out in ways of more and more violence around the world. So I was really upset about it. And every time I'd read the paper, and back then it was actually reading a newspaper, (laughs) the big paper thing, (laughs) um, I'd see the names of hawks in the administration, current that administration, and I would feel real aversion, like real anger. And Mm -hmm. then I started practicing radical acceptance. And what I mean by that is I would feel the anger and I'd pause and I'd say, okay, open to the anger. And when I really opened to it, underneath the anger, I would find there was fear. I mean, I was afraid of 
all the people I could tell were going to get killed and all the impacts, then I would say, okay, open to the fear. And I would open to it. And then underneath that was grief. Just mm-hmm. I was I was already grieving what was going to happen. And I'd say, okay, open to the grief and feel it as we did with rain. And underneath the grieving was caring. And you know, Gwyneth, every time I could get to the caring, I could then act, speak, navigate, but I was coming from a deeper place. Mm-hmm. And I remember in particular you know, right before Iraq, getting together with a whole bunch of clergy and other, it's interfaith kind of a gathering again, same place right across from the White House and Lafayette Square. And it was the kind of rally that was a, a peace rally. It wasn't, it didn't have hate or anger. It was, you know, please, this, please protect the Iraqi men and women and the American men and women. You know, it was like protect everyone. Mm-hmm. And we got arrested. I mean, I ended up in a paddy wagon with some Nobel laureates and some clergy. In fact, the police were joking about it being white collar crime because they were all wearing, <laughs> you know, it was really funny. But I'm sharing that because when I get reactive, I know I have to pause and deepen attention to come back to my heart and come back to some wisdom about things. What do the Buddhists say about the role of suffering? I don't know the why, and I don't see answers to why, but that there's a what, which is what happens, what is the function, what, what actually happens through suffering. And when we suffer, we can either resist it, fight it, be a victim of it, or we can meet it with some presence and kindness. Mm -hmm. And when we do, suffering becomes this call to wake up. Mm. I mean, suffering is a signal that we're disconnected. We're disconnected from ourselves and from each other whenever we're suffering. Like when I'm suffering, I, if I really pay attention, I'll find it's either I'm down on myself Mm-hmm. which happens all the time, you know, that I don't catch it. And as soon as I see it, I can actually then go, oh, not again. Come <laughs> be kind, be kind. Or I'm feeling separate from others. And mm-hmm. and we're, we're not happy when we're separate. So I think that suffering is really given to us as this kind of flag saying, hey, deepen attention. There's some disconnection here. Yeah. I want to ask you why you decided to re-release Radical Acceptance again, the most incredible book. And I, I highly encourage everybody listening to get a, a copy. What what precipitated this 20-year anniversary edition? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking because I love the book because I think of acceptance as the gateway to love. Mm. You know, we can't always just turn on the love switch, you know, especially if you know, our bodies like feeling aversion and we're pissed off and you can't just turn it on. But what you can do in any moment is pause and just accept what's going on in this moment. Mm. And acceptance does this. It's like, oh, there's more space. You know, we start sensing more that where the ocean and the waves are moving through us. And if you trust you're the ocean, you know, you're not afraid of the waves. So it acceptance opens us. So that's a, a core thing about really the power of it. But the reason I wanted to bring it back is because of what's going on in the world, mm-hmm. that our suffering is because we're so divided. We've forgotten our belonging with, to each other. Yes, We've forgotten our belonging to the earth. I mean, the earth is suffering because of us thinking that we're apart from the earth and then operating on it as if it's an object and violating it. So we've forgotten our belonging and radical acceptance, deepening our attention in this way is a way to bridge divides. Mm. If I am divided from myself and I can just sense, okay, judgment, you know, mistrust, and just bring attention and acceptance to that, I come back into more of a wholeness. Mm. And if you and I are feeling separation and we bring that whole quality of presence to what's going on here, we'll find our way back to our hearts. Mm. And I've seen it, I've seen it work with groups. I've seen how 
people that come together that are of difference um, and they begin to create space for each other and, and pay attention to each other's vulnerabilities, they rediscover their shared humanity. Mm-hmm. And I'll just share one story that just inspires me on this. Um, and this was in a documentary I saw that Van Jones put mm-hmm. together. He brought together, and he, he does this a lot, he's very about bridging divides, and he brought together a group of people fighting opiates, opiate mm. addiction in West Virginia, and a group of people from South LA who were fighting crack addiction. And he got them together for a week with the intention of, hey, let's see if we can work together. And they were amazingly culturally different, just as you can imagine. I mean, you know, it was difference in race, difference in politics, culture, everything. Mm -hmm. And so the whole frame was, can we pay attention to each other in a way that we kind of open our hearts beyond the divides? Can we see who the other is beyond the mask, in other words? Mm -hmm. And at one point, he had asked them to all bring a picture of someone they loved that had died from the from Mm -hmm. the addiction and at one point they were sharing their pictures and one man from west virginia had a picture of his son and he showed them the picture and he said the last thing i said to him was you got yourself into this you get yourself out and you could see in the group Mm -hmm. you know how that the basically opening a space accepting of each other turned into like true compassion Right. That's bridging divides. It's mm-hmm. we bridge divides when I start asking and sensing for you, you know, well, where does it hurt? Or mm-hmm. what's it like being you? And that's a training. And our world needs that training because we tend to go back into the trance of separation. So mm-hmm. that's why you it's a long-winded way to say radical acceptance is a training. It's a training yeah. of how to pause and how to deepen intimacy with ourselves and each other. Mm. And really how to start bridging the divide with yourself first and then going from there. That is exactly it. I mean, I, I so often I think of Carl Menninger. He's a psychiatrist. And he said that if people in the institution that he worked could forgive themselves for their perceived sins. Mm-hmm. He said 98% of them would be able to walk out the next day. Oh my gosh. Perceived we, sins. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we are so unforgiving. If we could just, you know, I I do a practice with myself. I'll just say forgiven, forgiven. And, mm. you know, it's like, it's okay. okay. It frees us up. Can I ask you a random question? So I am... Um, I'm in this, you know, wonderful phase of this perimenopausal phase of my life and uh, with a lot of my best friends. And we, we were talking about this the other night at dinner. It's a topic that sort of comes up a lot around sexuality through these transitions. And a lot of my women friends are really struggling with their sexuality or their, their, their connection to their own sense of, you know, pleasure, being able to sort of soften into like that sexual side, the the receiver. So is there an aspect of this work and teaching that can be applied there? It's like a very specific question that some of my friends are going through at the moment. If I asked any one of them, what do you feel is between you and really feeling fully alive, sensually, erotically? And what would, would, would you say, oh, just purely biologically toning down? Or is there something different or more? I, I think what they would say, and there are aspects of this that I am right there with them, but I have two friends in particular who are really feeling this in an acute way. And they say, you know, there's so much responsibility on them or perceived responsibility that they've put on their selves. And then there's a, certainly a biological, physical aspect, but then there's a, how do I sort of get out of the doing and back to like the softness of my feminine where, you know, like 
I think that seems to be the issue. Well, first of all, I'm loving that question. <laughs> I, think this, I think this is juicy because I, I think our doer, and I call it the inner controller. I think our doer, if we think of chakras, I think our doer shuts down our chakras. You know, it, it's, it's almost is biological that when we're stressed, when we're in fight, I mean, think of the extreme of fight, flight, freeze, you know, we cut off from, we can't digest, we can't take in, we're not pleasure creatures, we're all about making a muscle and pushing through something, we're Sisyphus pushing up the hill. So taking that metaphor, if we don't have a way of convincing the inner controller that life is short, you know, I think of that palliative caregiver that, you know, she asked all these people when they were dying, what was their greatest regret? That they didn't live true to themselves, you know, true to their true selves. If we in some way say to, to ourselves, if I was at the end of life looking back, mm-hmm. what would matter about how I live today and tomorrow? And none of us would regret that we didn't send off a few more texts or regret that we, you know, didn't do some more work. I mean, the only thing I'd regret is I didn't get back out into the woods and touch a tree and and feel my friendship with trees and geese and the river. And you know, that's what I would regret or that I didn't tell somebody I love them. Mm. That I'd regret. So I guess what I'm encouraging is to ask that question of what really matters Mm. as a way to gently invite the controller to step back because we can, everything that we most want to do, you know, in terms of serving and savoring requires us to be embodied right here. Oh, beautiful. Who are your go to your touchstone, you know, teachers, or it sounds like maybe in hearing you talk, I don't know, Mary Oliver or Thoreau, or, or maybe there's some therapists, like who, who, who do you go to? What writings or, you know, what is that well that you go back to? Oh, that's a fun question. Well, of course, there's the earthy poets like Mary Oliver. I mean, you know, it just makes me want to go outside and praise the the beauty <laughs> and the glory. You know, I think of Carlos Rovelli, who's this quantum physicist, and he talks about how he's, you know, anxious before he gives a talk. And what he'll do is he'll go outside and he'll touch a tree. And if he's done that, it kind of reminds him of his belonging and he can go and give the talk. So it's like, it's so clear to me that all the nature writers and poets and that invitation is so big. Mm-hmm. And I'm also inspired by Joanna Macy, who's mm-hmm. no longer as out there because she's like 98 or something, but her passion to her love of the earth mm-hmm. and just giving her life to help save the earth as just inspires me. So there's some spiritually based activists that really inspire me. And then there's some mystical teachers, uh, Srinar Sargadatta, for those that want to do a deeper dive. He wrote, wrote a book called I Am That, or uh, the book is basically of his teachings. And one of his core teachings is this. He says, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. To know that we belong to everything and then to know that we're not a thing. Mm. You know, we're not a separate thing. We belong. I love that. Mm. So funny that you say that. I was with a friend of mine the other day and she had had a psychedelic experience and she was telling me about it. She's an MD, by the way. I love this, this, this sort of push into this multidimensional healing. It's so incredible. But she was saying, you know, that the this feeling that we're all one, it was so clear in the process. 
but that all of the beauty is in the separation. Mm, mm, I mm. thought was so amazing. I had never thought about it in that way, but it's sort of what you're saying in a way, you know, it's like between the things is where it all is. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> and I and like you, I, I really am appreciative of the psychedelic movement. And I have all sorts of like, be careful, be careful, be careful on many, many levels, like all sane people do. And for so many, it has opened up just what you described, that sense of a unitive, that it's all one. And it appears in separateness, and we can embrace that and really cherish this world of form, you know, mm -hmm. cherish it. Mm -hmm. So it, it brings that alive. And then what when I'm, you know, I've done a lot of different talks and interviews around psychedelics, the whole, for me, the whole thing is, if it's not grounded in our own practice of contemplation, meditation, prayer, whatever our practice is, then it becomes this isolated high experience. But if we if we have a way to integrate it, yeah. it can jumpstart things in a beautiful way. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. I would love to just ask if we could finish by you telling the story of the, the plaster Buddha. Yeah. Well, you know, I was mentioning that if there's anything that feels like if I if I had one last time to teach that I'd want to most say, it's trust your goodness. I mean, trust that that love and awareness is inside you. And there's a a story that really illustrates this that and it happened it the event was in the 50s. There had been for centuries this plaster clay statue of the Buddha. And people revered it for its staying powder, but it wasn't like an attractive statue. In the 50s, it started cracking because it was a drought or something. And this is in Southeast Asia. And monks got curious as to the infrastructure. So they started beaming these flashlights to see what was inside. And what came out was this gleam of gold. So they eventually took off what turned out to be a covering. And it's the largest solid gold statue of the Buddha in Southeast Asia. And the monks believe, and this historians have confirmed, that it was covered over the way it was to protect it through difficult times, through, you know, wars, armies that would have, you know, taken it, destroyed it. But it's covered over in difficult times, much in the way that we cover over our own innate purity. And we move through life thinking we're the coverings. You know, I'm the appearance of Tara, or I'm the teacher, or I'm the person who's unworthy or I'm the worthy, you know, whatever, the coverings. And we forget who's looking through the mask. You know, we forget the consciousness, the creativity, the tenderheartedness, the awareness that's here. And so really, if there's any description of the spiritual path, it's to sense the coverings. It's our natural human conditioning. It's just ego conditioning. We all have it. We all feel the need to defend and present and all that. So to befriend that, and in bringing acceptance and care and presence to the coverings, we discover that timeless shine of the gold. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I it's, do too. I do too. It's I mean, one of my like, favorite stories of yours. I, this book, Trusting the Gold, I, I did it based on that, because I feel like if there's anything, when I get in trouble, if there's anything that helps me in those moments. It's just telling myself, trust the goal, you know, trust that goodness brings me back home. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, not only for this, but for honestly, you, I, I listen to you weekly and I do your meditations and you, you are so meaningful to me. So this was just an absolute highlight in all the, all these years of doing the podcast. I'm so grateful. Oh my gosh, going to thank you because I feel like you've got such a, a a creative, generous, and enlivening process going for the world. It's very, very cool. So, I'm, yeah, I'm you did a wonderful life pivot with. I mean, I'm, I'm, yes, it's mutual. 
Thanks for listening to today's conversation with GP and Tara Brock. To spend more time with Tara's work, head to tarabrock.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.